0: Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.
1: Hey, this is Duray and welcome to Pod Save the People. Now, this is a jam-packed episode. We have... Two guests, Commissioner Clyburn from the FCC and Lee Petro, leading expert uh, on issues of communication and mass incarceration, here to talk to us. Also, Clint Smith joining us to talk the news. I want to remind you that you have to find your work, that there's a role for everybody to play and everybody doesn't have to play the same role, that there's a role for social workers, for teachers, for high schoolers, for uh, for everybody in this work So make sure you're finding your work to do And not necessarily just doing the work that other people are doing Like you have skills and abilities That are unique to you That aid you in the fight Now the second thing I'll say is the dedication So I'll dedicate this pod to uh, two people One is Charlena Lyles Who's mother for a black woman Who was recently killed by the police in Seattle They said she was wielding a knife We're reminded that she called the police actually To report a burglary and was killed by the police Uh, She was promised by the police and it was on camera that they would not hurt her. And nonetheless, they killed her. And the second person this podcast is dedicated to is Philando Castile. You, like I, probably saw Philando Castile's final moments as his girlfriend streamed the aftermath of him being shot in Minnesota on Facebook Live with the young child in the back. Uh, The officer who killed him was found innocent on all counts. Now, dedicate this pod uh, to both of them. I'll close out the opening by sharing the words of Philando Castile's mother, Valerie Castile, after she uh, learned of the verdict. I want you to hear this.
2: My son would never jeopardize anyone else's life by trying to pull a gun on an officer and the gun was not fire ready. These are some of the facts that came out in the trial and I am so very, 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 very disappointed in the system here in the state of Minnesota because nowhere in the world do you die from being honest and telling the truth. Now, these are some things that you need to know and recognize. There has always been a systemic problem in the state of Minnesota. And me thinking with my common sense that we would get justice in this case. But nevertheless, it never seems to fail us. The system continues to fail black people and they will continue to fail you all. Like I said, because this happened with Orlando, when they get done with us, they're coming from you, for you, for you, and all your interracial children. Y'all are next. And you'll be standing up here fighting for justice just as well as I am. I am so disappointed in the state of Minnesota. My son loved this state. He had one tattoo on his body, and it was of the twins cities. The state of Minnesota with TC on it. My son loved this city and this city killed my son and the murderer gets away. Are you kidding me right now? We're not evolving as a civilization, we're devolving. We have taken steps forward. People have died for us to have these rights and now we're devolving. We're going back down to 1969. Damn, what is it gonna take? I'm mad as hell right now, yes I am. My first born one son died here in Minnesota. Under the circumstances, just because he was a police officer, that makes it okay. Oh, now they got free reign. He's found innocent on all counts. He's shot into a car with no regard to human life, and that's okay. Thank you, Minnesota. Minnesota Thank you, Minnesota. That's all I have to say.
1: So I invited Andy Slavitt to come back on the pod. He ran Obamacare for the past three years, and he's going to give us an update on what's happening with the repeal of Obamacare right now. Okay, so Andy, thanks for, for joining for a, a quick update on uh, Obamacare. What's going on since the last time we spoke?
3: Well, since the last time we spoke, the bill that was uh, being voted on in the House is now over in the Senate. Uh, the bill is being uh, doctored up in, in relative secret. In fact, there's only 13 people in the country, all of them Republican male senators that actually know it's in the bill. And it's being prepared for a vote next week. That vote will come only uh, a day or two after uh, it gets a formal CBO score and evaluation. And apparently it looks like it will happen with only a few hours of debate. Uh, maybe only two or three hours of debate. So there could be a vote as early as Thursday of this coming week.
1: Now, what did we learn about the bill from the last time that the CBO scored it, the House version? Because when we first spoke, there was no score then. Did we learn anything new? We did. We learned,
3: I think, four major things. The first thing we learned is that 23 million people across the country uh, will lose insurance coverage over the next few years. The second thing we learned is that the price of insurance for those who still buy it is going to spike. Uh, it'll be an average 20% higher. But what's even more interesting is who will pay more and who will pay less? People who are older and who are sicker, uh, will pay more. So people who are in their 50s and 60s could pay 8, 10, or even more, and people who are young and healthy could pay less. The third thing we learned is that the protections that people have in the ACA against pre existing condition discrimination, lifetime caps, and uh, having essential benefits, those protections will disappear, and that'll affect about one out of every six Americans. And then finally, the fourth thing we learned is that there will be you know, we talked last time a lot about Medicaid. There'll be a cut to Medicaid that'll be close to a trillion dollars. So about 25% of the program will be cut. And that's the care, of course, we talked about that goes to low-income people, kids, seniors, and people with
1: disabilities. That trillion dollars in cuts to Medicaid, is that being offset for tax cuts to the rich, or did I read that wrong?
3: No, Dre, you got it exactly right. Um, the the reason for the cuts is to create a very targeted tax cut. Tax cut primarily affects uh, a couple of groups. It affects uh, people who have over a million dollars in income. Those people will have an average of a $55,000 tax break. And then it affects a few corporations, uh, insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies, medical device companies, and tanning salons we'll all see pretty significant tax breaks. Tanning salons? Why not tanning salons?
1: That's just so random that that's going to be included
3: in the... You know, and and I'll explain why. Tanning salons um, have have a current uh, tax on them because they're known to cause cancer. Um, And so that is a, a cut that the tanning salon industry has lobbied repeatedly to have removed And uh, that's what would be granted by the Congress in this bill.
1: That's so wild. And in the secret version, do we know yet if uh, if the Congress people themselves and their staff are going to retain Obamacare as we know it today, or we just don't know anything yet?
3: We don't know because it's a secret. But we 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 have no reason to believe that they will be able that that they will be on the same plan as everybody else. Right now, as, as you know, they have exempted themselves in the House bill uh, from being on this bill, and it's unclear uh, what will happen. And while very little is known about this bill, what the few details that are leaking out uh, have so far shown the bill is getting worse, not
1: better. And what can people do about it?
3: Well, look, if you live—right now, this is all coming down to the decisions of a handful of senators. And so— if you live in a state um, with a Republican senator, I think it's very important that 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 Republican senator hear from you. Now, if you live in a state with two Democratic senators, but you happen to have a Republican governor, I think it's important that that, that Republican governor hear from you. And if you live in a state with all Democratic senators and governors, then I think you want to send a message to the Democratic senators to make sure that they are doing nothing in the Senate if not bringing up uh, the issues around health care and healthcare reform, no matter what kind of questions they're asked, no matter what the business is, uh, because if there's going to be a secretive process for the consideration of the bill, then they're just going to have to force as much dialogue as possible and call as much attention to it as possible.
1: Perfect. Thanks, Andy, for, for coming on to give us an update, and I'm sure we'll have you back on the pod to keep people informed. Thanks again for having me on, Don't go anywhere. More Ponte of the Peoples coming.
4: In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both Black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham...
1: With BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P pcom slash people. And now for the news, it's me, Sam Sinyangwe, an incredible data scientist. He's at Sam Sway on Twitter. And then Clint Smith, the third. Clint Smith is a writer, a PhD student, and incredible thinker about race, justice, equity, and education. He is Clint Smith. The third on Twitter. Here we go. Today we have Clint who is joining us. Clint, it's so great to have you on Pod Save the People.
5: It's good to be here. I'm like uh, Pod Save the People's play cousin. So it's cool to finally come over <laughs> to that. And you just had a baby. How old's the baby? I did. I had just had a baby. He is uh, three weeks old. You know, he is lovely and adorable and, you know, has quickly. Uh, trained me in all things dirty diapers and not sleeping between two AM and six AM but he's uh he's the best thing in the world and, and I feel very lucky. And what's his name? His name is we'll call him Lil J.
1: <laughs> Lil J, secret name. Okay, I like that. I like that. Lil J. Um and Sam's here too. Uh Brittany sends her love to everybody. She uh, is not on this episode because she is speaking right now, giving a bomb speech uh, about justice and equity in New York City. So, Sam, we'll start with you with the news.
6: Cool. So, my first piece of news is an article that just came out a couple days ago that New York City has decided to divest from private prisons. So, like their pension fund pension funds uh, had been invested in part in the many different companies that are running private prisons uh, and the board of trustees that decides how those investments are made, decided they were going to pull out all of their investments in private prisons.
1: That's incredible. How soon will they do it?
6: Uh, I'm not sure how soon I, it, it made the vote. So the decision uh, has been made. I, I don't know what the timeline is for, for doing it. What's interesting about it in part is that what I didn't know is that police New York City police officers, their pensions were actually in part invested in private prisons. Uh, so, so that was sort of a sub, some underlying subtext to the article that um, that was quite interesting.
5: I was just saying, it's cool to see them take this step. I mean, I, we know this is something that uh, a lot of schools and universities have been pushed by so many of their students to do. Columbia University, I think, a year or two ago, divested from uh, any anything in their sort of endowment portfolio having to do with private prisons, which. Which makes sense I mean as, as we know you know private prisons operate under the pretense of housing as many people as possible for as cheaply as possible for as long as possible, which kind of runs counter to any notion of rehabilitation or restorative justice so it's I think it's important that uh, institutions and cities are are really sort of taking a step back and looking at in what ways they want to sort of reject being complicit in in the sort of perpetuation and obviously in the trump era the potential uh, amplification of, of a system that operates in such a perverse way.
1: And we know that the way that we spend our money and, and the way we use public dollars influences the way industry is set up. And and hopefully this will be a model for cities across the country. And like you said, Clint, um, we also know that like it's not just cities, right? That it's universities, it's businesses, that there are a lot of people who low-key invest in things that are really damaging for communities. Um, and it seems like they're slowly coming around. So this is good news. Sam, what else?
6: So my second piece of news is that the Hawaii legislature, the state legislature, unanimously approved a bill to create a study committee that is going to look into the state creating called universal basic income, which means that every every resident of Hawaii would receive a a check, some sort of a a basic level of income, uh, regardless of. Uh, any other factors just to support themselves? Given the fact that you know, industry and, and high-paying jobs are hard to come by in, in the Hawaiian economy, which is uh, tourist-driven. That's really interesting to to hear that Hawaii is taking
5: next step. I mean, part of, since we were just talking about private prisons, uh, you know, part, one thing that's interesting about universal basic income is that it has potentially really huge implications for mass incarceration, right? And so, what we know is that so often uh, in part, what creates the sort of funnel of people going into jails and prisons is systems of poverty and systems of de- desperation, uh, specifically in black and brown communities. And oftentimes people who've been um, taken out of or discriminated against or sort of removed from the, the quote unquote legal uh, infrastructure of, of the economy. And so they go into the, uh, the illicit market. Um, and the sort of underground market drugs and different things and whatnot. But oftentimes, again, people are going into those spaces because they've been purposely pushed out of uh, the, again, quote unquote, legitimate market. And so part of what universal basic income does uh, is potentially creates a scenario in which people are not forced to act uh, with the sort of desperation that might lead somebody to doing uh, criminal activities, which could have potentially huge effects in terms of like who's putting themselves in situations that would ultimately lead them to uh, becoming incarcerated, and so obviously the ramifications and implications of that would be far-reaching in terms of not having as many people uh, separated from their families and, and
1: everything that comes with that. It's important to note that this is a this is almost always uh, talked about in the context of technology, uh, literally just taking people's jobs away from from them. So what happens when there's a workforce that no longer can can do the work that they've been doing, but people still need to eat, right? People still need homes and and when we think about the work of equity uh this is one of the things that can be about equity and clint to your push and, and clint I don't, you, we haven't talked about this before but i thought that there was an interesting critique of universal basic income with regard to race clint or sam i don't know i felt like i read something recently i don't remember it do either one of you know what i'm talking about
5: uh I'm sure there is. I mean, I, I think universal basic income has its pluses and its minuses um, as anything. I know Tommy Shelby, who's a professor at Harvard and a philosopher, uh, he, he's written a piece for the Boston Review a few months ago talking about how universal, universal basic income, if implemented properly, um, is a real opportunity for racial justice. And goes back and talks about, you know, how Dr. King uh, back in the 60s was talking about the Bill of Rights for the Disadvantaged. Um, and in that was talking about this sort of inextricable link between racial justice and economic justice and advocated specifically for a universal basic income because he saw the sort of beginning and nascent stages of globalization, and automation and those jobs that so many black folks um, who had gone up to the north uh, during the great migration were, were starting to lose because those jobs were being sent, uh, sent elsewhere. So I think, you know, as with any public policy measure, it depends on how it's implemented but I think if implemented correctly it can be uh be a huge opportunity it's not a, it's not a cure all
6: certainly but but if if done correctly I think can can be a huge thing for racial justice yeah, so in terms of critiques of it I think the only thing that I've seen is that you know it isn't a panacea right like with anything universal basic income can help close the income gap uh but will not close the wealth gap right and the wealth gap is so much right. bigger than than the income gap it's about $130,000 uh, difference between the average black family and white family, and so what this policy will do is help to lessen uh, the expansion of that gap, um, but will not actually, you know, result in black families getting more money uh, or being compensated to help close that gap between
1: families. And Sam, what's the difference between income and wealth?
6: So income is how much money you're making, like in your job. Uh, wealth is the total amount of resources that you have. So you know whether it's your car. If you own stocks and bonds, if you own a house, uh, the sum total of all of those things is the amount of wealth that you have. I think Sam's
5: point is well taken. I think understanding universal basic income as a set of reparations is is probably mistaken. You know, it's not going to go back and make it so that Black people had access to social security or uh, could get housing mortgages during the New Deal or anything like that. So it can't go and rewrite history. But what we can do as Sam alluded to, is is address the, the income gap, which creates the sort of basis uh, of, of a lifestyle in which the sort of larger intergenerational wealth
1: gap can be addressed after that. Got it. Glenn, what's your news?
5: Yeah, so my first piece of news is, is not a piece of news per se. Uh, so there was a, a study done in 2014 uh, by two Stanford researchers uh, that I've been thinking a lot about after uh, the verdict came out for Philando Castile. Um, and it talks about the way, you know, if you're like me and you're like us, oftentimes what we're thinking about, and what we're talking about is this sort of vast racial disparities that exist in the criminal justice system, whether in arrests or sentencing um, or, or, or what have you. And so part of what we do is we, we throw out statistics and we throw out data as a means to sort of convince people that there is an issue and that there is a problem. And with this study is disgusting is that that actually might have a counterproductive effect and might not have necessarily have the impact that we intended to. So, what the researchers did was they took um, different participants of, of all white folks and they essentially, uh, in the first experiment, did uh, an experiment in which they said that there was a white female researcher and 62 white people. They had them watch a video that contained mug shots of different men in prison. And in one of those videos, 25% of mugshots were those black men. In another video, the percentage of black male mugshots was raised to 45%. Um, and after they watched the video, participants were asked if they wanted to sign a petition easing up on the severity of California's three strikes law. And what they found was that more than half of the people who saw fewer black male mugshots signed the petition while only 27% of those who saw the higher percentage of Black male mugshots did. Then they did it again in New York City just to make sure. And what they found was that they primed participants by having them read about either the national incarceration rate, which was 40% Black, or the New York City rate, which was 60% Black. And then they were asked if they wanted to sign a petition to end New York City's stop and frisk, which we all know was uh, ruled unconstitutional by a federal judge a few years ago. And again, the results were pretty clear that 33% of those who saw lower rates of black incarceration, agreed to sign the petition, while only 12% of those who saw higher rates agreed to do so. And so, all of this is to say, you know, show, when I was thinking about this with Orlando Castillo, because so one of the numbers that kept going around was that uh, he was pulled over 46 times during his life before he was killed by the policeman. And and part of what's interesting to think about is that when we throw this number around, for many of us, it seems really appalling and it seems really shocking. But for a lot of white folks, that number might only sort of reinforce and reify an idea of his criminality. And and folks like Khalil Muhammad and Elizabeth Hinton have, have written a lot about this, the way criminality and uh, and blackness are sort of inextricably linked in the collective sort of imagination of white Americans. And and so this was a, a disconcerting study, but I think an important one to, to consider as we think about ways
6: to do this work. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. You know, as as somebody who often refers to the statistics and the data around some of these issues. I think it is one of these, you have to be really strategic about how you use those numbers. Uh, And I think what that study points to is how the audience, oftentimes you have to be able to anticipate how your audience will respond or react uh, to those disparities. And I think, you know, that really changes depending on who your audience is. I've noticed, for example, with policymakers, um, you know they're always looking for the data and the numbers, and they're very—they very often dismiss individual cases or stories. Uh, and so, the, so the data can be a really powerful tool uh, in terms of helping to push along policy change. But again, to the broader public, the broader audience, I think what the study raises is that there are often limits and even downsides to using particular statistics at particular times, and that we have to be conscious about how effective we're being in our advocacy.
1: And like you said, uh, Clint the reality that blackness even for progressive people still has a negative connotation right that like people the bias runs so deep and then the question becomes i think for us as organizers right like how do we how do we call that bias to the surface so so we can actually undo it because the study the study doesn't mean this is the way that it always has to be right it says that this is the way that it is now but there is this sort of tension about like when we talk about the numbers, which are real, and for some people, without the numbers, they just tune out, but the numbers might actually have the adverse effect, uh, which to me is like a conversation about how deep the bias runs, right?
5: No, I think exactly. And I think it's important, you know, we can look at the uh, closed Rikers initiative and the organizers who were doing that as an example. And I think part of what made that initiative successful ultimately was that it relied in part on stories, right? It wasn't only data. Um, it didn't reject it and say we're not going to use that at all, or not going to use statistics. But really, the story of Khalif Browder was kind of a watershed moment and, and really gave momentum to the cause. It, made, it gave a human face to, to so much of the chaos and um, the abhorrent conditions that exist in Rikers, to and brought it to the broader public. And I think that you know focusing on those stories is, is a really important aspect, and, and not only having the statistics by themselves, again not rejecting them, but coupling them with compelling and important stories that uh, sort of serve as a microcosm for a much larger phenomenon that's happening.
1: Boom. Uh, and what's your second piece of news? So a second piece of news,
5: again, isn't new, a news story necessarily, but we're recording this on Juneteenth. Uh, and I think it's really important to, you know, I always go back and sort of reflect on uh, the enslavement of my ancestors on oftentimes, but especially on this day. And there's a website called informationwanted.org that I stumbled across a few months ago. And on it, it had sort of uh, these ads that were uh, placed by formerly incarcerated folks after the Civil War ended in 1865 who were looking for their family members. And so oftentimes we sort of uh, just universally celebrate emancipation or we universally celebrate uh, the end of the Civil War, and we say everybody was free, this was great, what an important day, even Juneteenth when we commemorate that. Uh, but part of what I think is important to remember is that freedom was accompanied by so much grief, and there were pe- millions of people who were separated from their loved ones and never saw them again. And, and I think reading these, uh, these ads of, of the sort of heartache and the grief and the devastation that accompanied what should otherwise, you know, presumably be an incredible moment in your life that you are you are free for the first time ever without you know not knowing that you ever would have been um, is, is bittersweet for many people because they were taken away from their husbands and their wives and their children uh, and their and their fictive kin and and I think that's really important to remember and to sort of complicate our understanding of emancipation um, and that while it was a hugely important thing it was uh, accompanied by a lot of difficulty for many people.
1: That's fascinating. I had never seen. Um the site information wanted.org before. Um, and it's heavy because you go and and it's like all these ads where people are trying to reconnect and you can actually sign up to help transcribe them, which is also fascinating. This is what's so powerful about this is that it reminds you, like you just said, Clint, of like the human aspect that like, it, and it complicates this notion of, of what freedom is, right? Like how free are you when all the people you love and everybody, that meant the world to you is like spread across the country and you are putting newspaper ads out to try and find them. Um, that doesn't seem like much freedom to me.
6: No, I think you're exactly right. It also makes me think about the sort of trajectory of history thereafter. Right. And how, you know, emancipation was followed by, you know, this brief period of reconstruction, uh, for not even really two decades, where you know there was sort of a, an effort to to rebuild and reconnect and and uh, reinvent and invest in you know what what could have been an incredible you know future for Black people in this country and and then that was all shut down so quickly um, with the end of Reconstruction and the imposition of Jim Crow and
5: even the way we remember Reconstruction I think you know needs to be pushed because oftentimes you know what I was taught is that Reconstruction failed and that Reconstruction in part because of the the carpetbaggers from the North and the lazy Black people who didn't know how to be effective politicians. And and we don't think about it as something that instead was killed by the sort of creation of the uh, White Citizens Council and the Ku Klux Klan and and these people whose whose specific intention was in preventing Black people from effectively exercising Their citizenship, and and I think you know Eric Foner and and other historians have really sort of tried to flip that narrative on its head and make sure that we understand that it was a proactive thing that was done to Black people uh, and done to the South rather than uh, the result of of something you know uh, that has to do with the laziness of
1: formerly enslaved people or anything like that. Clint, that was that website's crazy. Yeah, it's bananas. How'd you find it? Uh, this PhD student at
5: Penn posted it, um, and, and I came across it, I think a few months ago and just got like lost in there for hours. It was terrible, but super illuminating. Um, and so, yeah, I just went back there today and, uh, it's It's just, it's just crazy to read it, you know?
1: So because this is a jam packed episode, I'm only going to offer one, uh, one piece of news. And that is that the... Department of Education has said that it's going to scale back civil rights uh, investigations. So the details are that regional offices will no longer be required to alert department officials in D.C. of all highly sensitive complaints on issues such as disproportionate disciplining of minority students and mishandling of sexual assaults on college campuses, and that the requirements that that investigators broaden their inquiries to identify systemic issues and whole classes of victims will be... Severely scale back. So what we see is the Department of Education just wholesale abdicating its responsibility to protect the most vulnerable learners. It is uh, it is these sort of scaling backs that put our kids at risk. We know that the federal government, even in its faults, has been the only real source of um, equity and justice in many parts of the country that when left to states, that they just have not uh, fulfilled that burden. And the Department of Education has done incredible work over the years of making sure that equity is present in classrooms. Clint was a teacher. I was a teacher. Uh, Brittany was a teacher. This is uh, this is close to our hearts. And, and this is really tragic that it's happening uh, so soon and at all.
6: Yeah, it's interesting because you know, I've been in many situations where you know, I've talked to folks who are high schoolers, uh, students who are college students. And, uh, and oftentimes in those conversations, particularly around the election, you know, this question came up of, you know, it doesn't matter if Trump's the president because, you know, all the candidates are bad and and it's not going to impact my life. And I think, you know, there are so many facets to how this administration uh, is targeting folks of color, including high schoolers, including college students, um, by leaving folks exposed to discrimination, uh, and oppression, and, and, and all, of, all of these issues. Um, and you know, when you think about the election, like those, that was never really a part of the national conversation about the election. It completely went under the radar, and a lot of people may not have been thinking about the role of the federal government in enforcing civil rights standards in schools and in colleges, and yet you know, that is where so many people um, find themselves now exposed to, to what this administration is doing.
5: Yeah, and I think even as, as Deray mentioned, the federal government and the Department of Education has played a huge role in the last you know 10-15 years of even illuminating the disparities that exist in public education. And and we can go back and forth about the the positives and the negatives of uh you know the the language of the quote-unquote achievement gap or what that means or what it suggests about um, about Black children or Brown children as compared to their white counterparts. Because oftentimes the problem is that that uh, the achievement gap is discussed in the context of race without any historical context without any conversations about what Sam discussed with regard to the wealth gap and the implications that that has but But to see those numbers and to see the disparities I think was was important and while different while people have a range of different opinions on the best way to move forward, I think it changed the conversation because there was a sort of renewed sense of urgency uh, around what was a an ever sort of stratifying. Um, divide between black and brown students and and their white affluent counterparts, and those graphs and that those the the data and the statistics were um, those were projects that were done by the federal government. Without them, uh, I don't think we would know as much as we do about the disparities that exist racially or or based on socioeconomic income uh, across the country.
1: Yeah, and, and you're right. During the election, there were so many people who were like, "There's this idea that like all politics is local," and. Uh, and I think that that sounds cool. I think that um, all organizing probably is local, but the reality is that the federal government, national politics is a huge bearing on people's everyday lives in ways that they are starting to see now just because this administration so wild. But this is one where like, you know, I can think about a handful of school systems that if it was not for the education department, uh, civil rights division coming in and saying like, you know, you can't suspend kindergartners like that right like or you can't you can't impact kids of color in this disproportionate way with regard to discipline like they never ever would have been uh put on notice that they need to change and it's these sort of things that we have to be mindful of at the federal level that's the news hey you're listening to pod save the people don't go anywhere there's more to come
0: hello america it's ted from consumer cellular the guy in the orange sweater and this is your wake-up call
7: Learn more at netsuite.com/podcast25.
1: And now we have Commissioner Mingyang Clyburn, who is a member of the FCC, the first black woman ever appointed to the FCC. Here we go. Commissioner Clyburn, it's an honor to have you on Pod Save the People this week. It is my pleasure. Now, can you talk a little bit about how you got to the FCC and what is it like to be a commissioner? I know that you were the acting, uh, chair of the commission for a bit. What was, what has it been
8: like? It has been an interesting ride. I have seen so many changes over nearly eight years. I came from the State Commission. I spent 11 years on the Public Service Commission in South Carolina. Before that, I had a weekly newspaper for about 14 years. Uh, So I got this gray hair, honestly. Uh, But I have been a part (laughs) of this uh, uh, media and uh, telecommunications or communications uh, ecosystem for some time now. Most of my professional, life. I believe uh, that people have a need to be informed, and I also know that there are a lot of media outlets out there, but they're not serving uh, people on the ground. And so it was important to me uh, to have that weekly newspaper to bridge that information gap. It was important to me uh, to be a regulator to uh, take care of that and look at that side of the equation, because um, what I see too often is um, everyday people don't see where they have a place, they don't have a voice, that they don't have an advocate. And um, I consider that myself uh, that advocate for those um, who can't afford to come to D.C., to those who could not afford to come to the meetings um, in South Carolina, that I was their voice.
1: Now, we'll talk about uh, calls from prison in a second, but what else, what does the FCC do that we don't know about? Like, what is the work of the FCC?
8: The FCC literally um, has some type of regulatory footprint when it comes to everything that transmits a signal. Um, when it comes to international communications, uh, local or a. Uh, 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 Communications within uh, the U.S. When it comes to radio, television, cell phone, satellite, uh, cable—you uh, know, you name it—you you know, radio, you name it—the um, FCC, when it comes to the communication space, um, we have something to do with that. So I think people don't realize how expanded. It, it's just not. Uh, issuing a fine if there's a wardrobe malfunction or someone uh, says something on the air. It is really much more. And when you hear this talk about open internet principles and policies, when we talk about um, how uh, your relationship with your cell, your your phone uh, provider, when we talk about what goes on on cable, uh, uh, satellite, uh, you know, uh, television, we have limited influence on that. But all in all, when it comes to uh, when it's a transmission of a signal, the FCC has some authority uh, somewhere along that plane.
1: Now, what are the big issues that are before the commission or what are the issues that people should know about that maybe we haven't been talking about? Uh, I sure. think about things like calls from prison, net neutrality. What, what's on the horizon?
8: Well, one thing that we are struggling with that people complain about every day, which is our number one complaint that we get at the FCC, is those robocalls. You get them. No matter where you are, you can't escape them. Somebody's calling you, trying to sell you something, and many of those calls are not well-meaning. And so our number one complaint is those calls, especially when we're trying to um, you know, hang out with our family or and we see this call, it looks like it's local, and it is not. So that's the number one irritant um, for most people. A lot of people still talk about, um, uh, commercials on television in terms of how loud or not they are. We hear a lot of people complain about that. We um, have some um, jurisdictions when it comes to that. But a lot of what we do in terms of uh, resources, in terms of the amount of money that we allocate uh, that the American public helps us uh, to support is um, your communications um, uh, footprint when it comes to broadband and when it comes to, um, you know, voice phone. We spend, we invest 8.6 billion dollars annually of your money to support what we call a universal service program. And a lot of people might not be aware that um, over half of that fund goes to support something we call the Connect America Fund or the High Cost Fund. That means for those in rural America, that money is sort of an equalization of 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 sorts. What I mean by that is, if you live in a big city. It's going to cost per person much less uh, to provide telephone service than it would if you live in Hollywood, South Carolina. You know I have to bring up South Carolina because I'm a native. And so it's going to cost more to provide services in Hollywood, South Carolina. So with the FCC uh, and Congress, um, what we have done was send some economic support to those carriers in the Hollywood, South Carolina's, of the nation, and saying this is the makeup um, the economic makeup um, that you would uh, get um, you know every month to support affordable services uh, in those areas, another thing that's gotten a lot of attention um, uh, you, when when it comes uh, to our universal service uh, program is the schools and libraries program or e rate. Just about every school and library in this country has been the beneficiary of um, universal service, your dollars, to provide much-needed connectivity uh, to uh, those um, I, those centers uh, for learning, uh, those schools and those libraries that those resource centers that are, are so uh, important. So, well over $3 billion, um, you know, uh, goes uh, to support that. We also um, have a Healthcare Connect Fund that people don't know about. That is a much smaller pot, um, but about 300 or $400 uh, million dollars annually goes to support those small clinics in uh, mostly in rural communities. Uh Give, giving them the connectivity they need to provide much-needed service. And a program that I care a lot about that has been under attack for a number of years is the Lifeline program. You've heard about it. It um, has been negatively um, cast as that Obama, the Obama phone. And I say that to say oh, this. yeah, uh, this program, the Lifeline program, has provided over 12 million people annually the only means of phone service that they could afford there are a lot of people in this country um, that cannot afford basic phone service Uh, there are even more who qualify for the service but um, there is a stigma attached to it but this program if not for them um, many of our neighbors many of those persons when we travel that clean our rooms that do um, you know domestic work who are not high-wage people they could not afford a phone but for this service it has been under attack I have been doing everything I can to uh, to make it uh, more viable and to make it more uh, this is a word when I got up here that I learned ubiquitous um, and so that is um, is very important for those um, who otherwise could not afford to dial 911, could not afford to um, call that uh, employer back to keep that job, could not afford to find out what their children are doing in school. And so these are the things that um, people might not know that the FCC administers.
1: Yeah. And the lifeline assistance, uh, program, I, I, didn't know that that was a formal name for uh, the Obama phones, but, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you're eligible for those if you are already eligible for another state assistance. So like SNAP, Medicaid, supplemental security income, federal public housing. Absolutely. And that this was a new, this was a new initiative under the Obama administration. Is that correct?
8: Well, you know what? No. Um, I hate to correct oh. you on your show. <laughs> but yeah, the Lifeline yeah. me, Program yeah, has been around for 30 years. It started Whoa. out as, a, a, it's been around for 30 years, was established under the Reagan administration, was expanded, wow. established just for um, what we call plain old phone service or, or, or landline phone service to uh, for those who could not afford it. It provided a monthly stipend uh, to them, a supplement to them. It was expanded under the Bush administration for mobile or cellular service for those who cannot afford it. And now what we have done is expanded it to offer a a stipend or or help for those who Uh, Who cannot afford broadband and so it's been around for a while You've just heard some of the negative press which kind of brings it to play But it's been around for a long time and what we are attempting to do is to modernize it to clean up some of the inefficiencies that um, I will admit um, that um, that, uh, That it suffered from but this is a program that I believe that if we were to complement it or tie it to other initiatives that would help those in need that we could have a a connected a country and people could do more um uh you know i i you and i both know with being connected and informed
1: yeah i didn't i didn't know that it had been around for 30 years i why That's do people call it as the as obama you. phones in <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is It is literally, like, <laughs> as old as you. Um, why do people call it the Obama
8: phones? Well, I think it is a negative um, political, um, you know, there were some things that um, did happen uh, that we did discover that people were abusing. There were some carriers that were doing some things that uh, were not allowed. Uh, they were uh, distributing, um, you know, uh, phones to people who did not qualify. But I want to uh, assure people of this. If you do not qualify for the program, no matter who hands out anything, that company was not going to get a dime unless a qualified individual signed up for service. So you've got the optics. It was negative optics about people, um, you know, intense and in doing other things that were not allowed. Um, not everybody intense were, they were uh, they, they were not um, all abusing, but there were some people who were mailing our phones to people who did not qualify that made the news. And that really tarnished a program that is really seeking to help um, those in need. If you do not qualify that for that program, if the company cannot prove that you qualify, you do not get a dime uh, from the FCC or the administrators. So I want to assure, uh, uh, assure people of that, but it got a negative stigma, you know, and, and you know how politically, um, intense things um, were back then. Um, They still are. Uh, But, um, you know, people use politics and leverage. And unfortunately, the people who got trampled are the ones who need help the most. And that's the most unfortunate part of all of this, that the people who need uh, this program, the program that we're doing our darndest to fit, uh, that they caught caught up into this political vortex. And that's a shame. And we need to always continue to work against, um, you know, those forces that will keep people um, from getting the help they need.
2: Yeah.
1: And and like you said, it started in, in 84, was expanded in, in 96, and uh, it covers a monthly discount on landline or wireless telephone services. And importantly, and, and push me if I'm wrong here, is that it actually isn't subsidized wholly by taxpayer monies, but it comes out of the Universal Service Fund, which is a fee assessed against phone providers. Absolutely.
8: Uh, well, and, 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 and honestly, you as a, uh, if you look at your bill, um, next, the, your next billing cycle, you will see a line item that says universal service fund. We all contribute to the fund because we all know that um, everyone benefits when everybody's connected. Um, so, um, that, right, uh, the companies do uh, contribute. Um, ultimately, you are paying the bill every month. And so that how that is how it, it, it's passed on to benefit um, everyone in America, particularly those who can't afford service or where the cost is too high to provide affordable service.
1: Now I I read recent comments of yours where you talk about net neutrality. Can you can you explain what what the issue is with net neutrality? I know that phrase for some people uh, doesn't resonate or they just don't know. So what is it?
8: You know, to me, how I define it, and everybody defines uh, net neutrality, I always say open internet, because to me, that better sums up what we're speaking about. We're speaking about the most empowering platform of our, lifeline, our lifetime, and how we can ensure that everyone has access. If you have a gatekeeper, if you have a company, if you have a government that is blocking or extracting tolls, or oh, is, is, is Giving preference over um, uh, uh, over giving preference to me. Uh, at the cost of you, then, then we don't uh, benefit. So to me, when you talk about net neutrality, when you talk about open internet, it is having all you know, it, legally flowing information, access to um, those things online that we could all benefit from, that it is equal, that it's not discriminatory, that is is open, that you can use any device of your choice if it's not harmful to the system to access um, the information services and people that will benefit you the most. So again, we're talking about openness. We're talking about the First Amendment for connectivity when it comes to online uh, service. That's how I describe, um, that's how I see uh, net neutrality and the open internet. It is applying First Amendment principles uh, to access online, uh, to access uh, to connectivity, to access, um, you know, uh, to the internet and broadband opportunities.
1: Like, what's the other side saying? So people who don't believe the Internet should be open, what does it actually look like?
8: Well, they will say that that's not what they believe, but they think that, um, that rules don't need to apply, uh, that companies will abide by the principles, uh, that there is no benefit uh, for them to stifle innovation, uh, to, uh, to play favors and the like. But we have seen example after example of where the big guys have slowed down traffic, have given preference, um, you know, to other uh, providers, we have, um, you know, exposed some of those, you know, activities in terms of preferential treatment. Um, So my thing is, um, you know, the principles, the reason why you hear me talking about different titles, they don't mean anything to the average people. But I say this, when it comes to this platform, there needs to be clear, laid out rules for all of us to govern ourselves, we have a responsibility as citizens to ensure that our conduct is 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 is, is legal uh, and and um, you know upstanding. And the companies um, have an obligation to be uh, transparent uh, about um, their rules, transparent um, and open uh, when it comes to uh, uh, you know uh, pricing and, and the like. And um, I I think it's an, an important for us to. Be, have mutually inclusive um, uh, rules of the road, so everyone knows how uh, what is expected of, of the other. And so um, the argument is whether or not we need rules of the road for uh, for companies uh, to uh, conduct themselves accordingly. I have seen time and time again um, where big businesses um, answer to their shareholders and to their best interests, and too often I've seen consumers or individuals get the short end of the stick. This is too important a platform to leave that a, the chance, and that's why I'm supported of Title II open internet uh, principles uh, with a uh, a strong referee, the FCC on the beat, um, being uh, the uh, the person that calls it calls the shots, so everybody will benefit on the field.
1: And this means, and and push me if I'm if I'm wrong here. I thought that net neutrality also meant that internet service providers would be able to charge more for faster service. So they could create these like express lanes uh, for some people, which is different than how it currently functions today, where it's sort of like everybody's granted sort of equal access to the internet. Is that correct?
8: Well, I, I will say that a true open net neutral platform does not allow for principally what you just put out that you cannot, um, if there is no reason to, um, you know, charge anyone anymore, um, you know, for a particular service that, um, or for, for, access, uh, to the internet, you know, that's what we're talking about. What, what, we call sort of the on off ramps or access to the internet, um, in terms of your service plans or the like, that's something different. Um, you know, that's something that's trans, uh, you know, parent, um, you know, whatever you decide, if, if I want, you know, uh, one gigabit speed or if I want 10 gigabit speeds, chances are they're not going to cost the same. But my access to the Internet, whether you're treating my traffic the same or my access the same, that is what we're uh, uh, speaking about, you know, in principle.
1: And you are you were the first black woman ever appointed to the FCC. Is that correct? That is correct. How do you think your identity has, has shaped your perspective or has helped you think about these issues differently, if at all?
8: I am very sensitive and um conscious about um you know who I am and what i represent uh of African American female voice has never been heard, you know, on the eighth floor uh, of the FCC, in in my particular, um, you know, space in, in in this office, in in this title. Um, I think that is important for for everyone to see uh, that um, inclusive. Um, if you're more inclusive, that you get a, a better outcome, you get a better a regulatory paradigm. Uh, that you get. Um, um, you know discussions uh, that are more um, in- inclusive and expanded when it comes to perspectives. All of those things, I believe, when it comes to open internet principles, uh, when it comes to Lifeline, when it comes to the schools and libraries program or E-Rate, when it comes to uh, one of the most important and challenging things that um, I think that we should be doing um, better when it comes to just and reasonable rates uh, for uh, inmates and their families when it comes to calls to and from prison. No one was speaking about that before I got here. No one was concentrating on that. We have been talking about families have been um, attempting to get just and reasonable uh, rates when it comes to calls that are made to and from prisons before 2000 no one gave gave voice to that um before uh, this commissioner uh, got there so these are the issues that are affecting 2.7 million children in our nation there are 2.2 million or so um, inmates that are in prison. There are millions of individuals and families that are impacted, and no one was paying attention to this issue uh, up until a few years ago. And so um, this is what I believe a different voice, a different face, um, you know, brings to an agency, perspectives and and topics and things that are happening in the community that a regulatory fix, um, you know, could uh, improve Those are the types of things that I think um, in in a broader sense that we're not happening on this floor. We call it the eighth floor. We're not happening on this floor in this in this commission uh, before we got here.
1: Now, what can people do to influence the decisions of the FCC? Like what what would you say to people who are like, how can I make an impact? How can I uh, influence the decision around that neutrality or around rates for prisoners, phone calls? Like what can people do?
8: Every single decision that we make, um, we have an open... Uh, platform through the internet, uh, through uh, calls, through letters that people can weigh in. Uh, One of the things that I I, I wanted to mention, um, that inmate calling uh, decision, because we just had a very negative finding um, from the court when we were uh, in our attempts to really bring just and reasonable rates. Um, If we did not hear from you and you care about this issue, you care about your neighbors and those children who cannot afford to speak to their parents, you should have been speaking up, but it's not too late. You should um, call the FCC and say, you should do something about this problem. You should call um, your local sheriff. You should call your lawmakers uh, back home. Uh, You should um, call Congress and say, this is something that we care about. The FCC is ultimately responsible for one-sixth of our nation's economy because that is what, when we talk about uh, communications and telecommunications, that is the amount of gross national product uh, that we're responsible. responsible for the most important things in your life, how you communicate, when you communicate, how much you pay for communications. That is what the FCC is responsible for. And when it comes to this particular issue in terms of inmate calling, I say to you that the FCC has not been adequately following Section 1 of the Communications Act. And I want to read a part of that to you because I think it's important. The Commission's purpose is to make available so far as possible to all the people of the United States without discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, national origin, or sex a rapid, efficient, nationwide, and worldwide wire radio communication service with adequate facilities and get this at reasonable charges. When you see someone paying $1.50 a minute um, uh, for a call, when you see uh, someone not being able to afford broadband, when you see someone, you know, who cannot afford to be uh, connected to their doctors, then we're not upholding uh, that uh, particular standard. So, if we're not doing that and if it's not benefiting you, you need to weigh in um, and say, This is what you should be doing. Why aren't you doing this? Uh, Here is this proceeding. So people need to speak up and speak out. Uh, This is your FCC. It's not the big businesses FCC, but if we only hear from big business, if we only hear from industry, then I guarantee that the outcome is not going to be for the benefit of everyday citizens.
1: Got it. Well, that is that's helpful. I appreciate you joining uh, me today on Pod Save the People. I consider you a friend of the pod and I can't wait to see you uh, back on on the pod.
8: Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you very much.
1: Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come.
0: Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake up call.
7: Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.
1: And now my conversation with Lee Petro, one of the leading lawyers in the country, working on issues around increasing access to communication for the incarcerated. Here we go. Lee, it's an honor to have you on the pod today. Thanks so much for joining. Well, thank you very much for having me. So Lee, how did this become your work?
9: You know, I started a couple of years ago starting work to do work on a pro bono basis for uh, those who are hard of hearing and need disability access to telecommunications. And then a friend of mine um who I went to law school with said that, you know, there was this case dealing with inmates and um the the phone rates that were being charged and it seemed when I did a little bit of research that it was such an egregious case of exploitation. Um so you know I took the case over in 2010 from the team that had set it up and had been working on it since you know nineteen ninety nine. So Lee
1: I thought pay phones were in prisons and jails. Why are there no pay phones? Like, how do we get to this, this even being an issue of the the cost of calls in prison?
9: Sure. So, you know, up until really the early 1990s, the pay phone industry was, you know, provided or ruled by the bell companies. And so, the Bell companies or the local exchange carriers, you know, placed payphones at various locations, um, including jails and prisons, and their rates were subject to FCC regulation. You know, through the tariffing process. Um, what began to happen in the late 1980s and early 1990s was this uh, creation of a the payphone calling card industry, uh, where you could get a calling card from a different company. That company bought access on the payphone service and then resold the service to you, so you could dial around a payphone, um, you know, the, the Bell company, and you know, use a calling card number, um, and and get access. And so, when that or you know, when the technology was you know originated to permit that to happen, it really opened up the opportunity for other companies to provide the payphone service in prisons and jails. And as that developed, the actual bell companies started to sell off their business to private companies that would, uh, you know, enter into contracts with facilities and uh, offer the service, you know, on a monopoly basis at that location.
1: That makes sense. So it seems like calling cards sort of cut into the the profit margin of the payphone services or the payphone companies. Now, what about collect calling? I, I feel like I remember that most of the calls that I've ever taken from anybody in jail, at least years ago when my uncle was in jail, were collect. Is that not happening at the same rate that it was 10, 15 years ago?
9: No, it's completely dropped off. So, you know, as the calling card industry started and these private companies came into um, the local facilities and offered their services, Um, they began to offer either prepaid or uh, debit-type account systems where you would either, you know, give them your credit card and they would just charge you for each call, or you would put a set dollar amount into your account and, you know, it would be re-upped every time you burned through how much money you had deposited. Um, So now we're looking at, you know, about 95% of calls from prisons and jails are either through prepaid or debit, And, you know, just 5% or less are collect call. And, you know, part of that is because collect calls um, had an issue of bad debt so that the phone companies would be stuck with, you know, somebody would say, yes, I'll accept the call. They would ring up, you know, a $15, $20 bill, and then they wouldn't pay it. And so the companies would have to write it off. Um, And it's certainly more efficient if, certainly if the rates are low enough that, you know, a family member can budget. You know we're gonna you know we're gonna budget fifty dollars for calls from you know your father or your brother uh, this month and we've got to stay within that Um, and you know if if the rates are low enough you can actually have several conversations Um, the so you know part of that process was the development of these ancillary charges which um, you know is a whole separate matter but um, you know the company started charging you know enormous um, amounts, $5, 10 $15, just to deposit money um, into your prepaid account or every time you did a credit card transaction.
1: So that makes sense. So just to recap, it looks like uh, pay phones weren't making money because of the calling cards, and then collect calls weren't making profit for the companies because people essentially just weren't paying uh, the charges that they incurred. So, what is the actual cost of a phone call from a jail or prison?
9: Um, so, the the cost to provide the service for the company is less than $0.04 cents per minute, and that includes, you know, all of the security measures that they put over top or recording phone calls and such. Um, the the charge to the consumers can go anywhere between, um, you know, for interstate calls now, we're looking at caps at $3 and $3.75, um, but in some states and, and counties, uh the companies are charging up to twenty dollars for a fifteen minute phone call uh, to the consumer, so you know the spread between four cents per minute and you know twenty dollars for a fifteen minute phone call that's all profit for the for the phone companies
1: now, I thought I read somewhere that the phone companies are giving some of this money back to the actual jails and prisons i didn't know that that was happening. Can you explain that
9: sure um, it's one of the Craziest part of parts of all of this, it started, you know, really in the 90s when these private companies entered the market Um, as an incentive to win the contract. um, They offered to share a portion of the profit with the correctional facility. Um, And over the years, that percentage has grown, you know, from five or 10 percent to now some counties actually receive and states actually receive up to 90% of the revenue generated by phone calls, they actually get 90% of that back from the phone company. So every month, the phone company sends a report, a commission report to the uh, the jail, and they say this is the amount of, of phone calls at your facility, this is your percentage, here's a check for, you know, 90% of it or 80% of it. Um, so there's really no incentive for the prison or the jail to, you know, reduce the rates because as the rates go down, they get less money back into their coffers.
1: So Lee, that's fascinating. I had never read or heard much about the the prisons and jails profiting off of the calls, but I'm confused about how the the phone companies can give away sort of 90% of the profits of the cost of calls and still make billion dollars or billions of dollars as I've read that they do. Can you explain that to me?
9: Sure. Um, You know, the first part of it, of course, is that it doesn't cost very much to provide that service. Um, And then the second part of it, which is perhaps the most egregious aspect, are these ancillary fees that get tacked onto um, each phone call um, and all the other services that the providers um, offer at the jails. So, you know, I mentioned previously that, you know, when you load money into your prepaid account, they charge you a fee. Um, up until recently, that fee was uncapped, and it was you know up to you know ten fifteen dollars every time you wanted to load money into your prepaid or debit account, you would get charged a credit card fee of ten dollars or fifteen dollars and that was all pure profit. It was not part of the revenue that was shared with the prisoner jail. It just went to the bottom line of the uh, phone companies um, The other aspect of this is that when they uh, try to obtain the contract, and they're going through the RFP process. They offer a, a number of additional services like email, um, you know, music, um, tablets, educational programming. All of, the, but of course, they charge the inmates and their families for those services. If you want to send an email, you buy a book of electronic stamps for five dollars. Um, you know, it doesn't cost the company five dollars to send an email, but. You know, they they pocket that revenue and that offsets whatever they share through the commissions on the the, the telephone calls.
1: And how how are they able to keep 100 percent of that profit? Is any of that regulated by the FCC or is only the calls regulated by the FCC?
9: Right. So, I mean, it, right now, the FCC is not regulating anything other than phone calls and these ancillary fees, uh, you know, the tack-on cost and such. Um, so, emails, tablets, video visitation, um, you know, all the other additional services that the, these providers offer at the jail or prison, you know, are outside of the FCC's jurisdiction right now. Um, and really, nobody, you know, no other government agency would have power Yeah, perhaps the you know consumer protection um, or or the FTC, uh, but up until now they declined to take a close look at it.
1: I've read recently about video conferencing. Is that expensive too, or is that cheaper than phone calls?
9: So they've, you know, the new movement is for the phone companies to offer video visitation um, so that you know, family members can either have an app on their phone or they go to the prison um, or some central location. Like in Virginia, some of the churches have video visitation booths set up so that you can um, you know, speak with a family member who's in prison or, or, the, or jails. Um, if you go to the prison, sometimes they'll put you in a room and the room next to you is the inmate. You don't actually get to see them in person, but you talk to each other through a screen. Um, typically, the you know the the companies don't charge for on-site video visitation, but if you're at a remote site, you know the fees are you know fifty cents or more per minute. Um, so you pay 20 dollars for a fifteen-minute video visitation session. The cost of providing you know the service um, is a bit more, um, but it's certainly not you know, the different or it's not certainly not 50 cents per minute to provide that service. And in most cases, the, you know, the phone companies during the RFP process will say, we'll install this for free, but we get to keep all the revenue up until some certain dollar amount that's, you know, purportedly to cover their costs. Um, so, you know, they bank a hundred percent of that revenue for, you know, a good part of the contract. And then, you know, they'll share part of that revenue with the facility, you know, once they recoup their costs. So again, it's a question of, you know, the, the, the family members paying for this service dollar for dollar, um, and, you know, the facilities and the phone companies, you know, banking the, you know, the revenue.
1: That's fascinating. I had no clue that That they're willing to give up the profit on the actual calls on the front end because they're pocketing essentially 100% of everything else in the back end. What do you say to people who who say that if if the prisoners or inmates didn't want to pay the cost of making phone calls and they just shouldn't have done the crime and they wouldn't be in jail anyway?
9: Well, you know, that ignores the fact that it's not the inmate that's actually paying the fee um, or the cost to remain in contact. It's the family member. It's the grandmother. Like in the case of, you know, my client, Martha Wright, you know, she was a blind 80-year-old woman um, whose grandson was in federal prison. And, you know, she had to decide between paying for her medication or remaining in contact with them. Um, you know overall there's 50, you know fifty percent uh, of the of the folks that are incarcerated were once the primary breadwinner for their family um, and you know seventy percent of the families that have somebody incarcerated um, have a child that's under eighteen um, so you really aren't focus or you really shouldn't be focusing on the the inmate who's in the prison that's created this situation it's really you know the the family member the the wife um the grandmother that's you know footing the bill while their breadwinner is actually you know incarcerated and they're trying to remain in contact so that when that person's released, they can, you know, resume um, being a, you know, a, a member of society and not recidivate and go back to prison in in the future.
1: Now the the FCC recently lost uh, or got an unfavorable sort of decision from the courts. Can you give us like a, a brief explanation of what just happened?
9: Sure. So um, in twenty fifteen October twenty fifteen, the FCC adopted... Um, a set of rates that would apply to all uh, telephone calls between inmates and their families, both intrastate, you know, calls within the state, and interstate calls between states. Um, you know, a large number of federal prisoners are kept, you know, 100 miles or more um, away and in other states from their family members. So interstate calls, um, you know, are, are important, but that's only about 20% of the overall call volume. The massive or the majority of the, uh, of the phone call uh, volume are in trust state. And at the court, the FCC was um, originally defending the decision from October of 2015 to adopt a cap on the rates for um, calls within the state uh, Immediately after President Trump was uh, you know, took office and named the Chairman Pai as the uh, leader of the FCC, um, they sent a letter to the court and said, "We no longer agree with the prior um, FCC administration majority, and we are not going to be defending the the assertion in the our." you know, in the FCC order that said the FCC had the jurisdiction to regulate calls within states. And so essentially what they did was they backed away from defending the right or the FCC to regulate 80% of the call volume um, from prisons and jails. And the court took that into consideration. Um, you know, the, the majority decision relied on that uh, letter and said if the FCC is not going to back it up, You know, why should why should we give them any deference for, um, you know, what was adopted in 2015?
1: So it seems like the court said that the FCC can only regulate calls that are made from inmates uh, to another state. But that the FCC doesn't have jurisdiction to uh, regulate calls that are made in like within a single state. That's correct, right? That's correct yep and so does that mean that the fight then needs to go to state legislatures is that what is that what people should be working on to get their states to regulate uh, the the cost of calls within a state and are any states doing that well
9: right so there's uh, there are a number of states that are doing it well um, I mean the fight really I mean, A, it's not over at the FCC. The matter was remanded to the FCC and will, um, depending on how Chairman Pai decides to proceed, will, you know, determine whether there's anything we can do there. Um, the, you know, the other option is to go to Capitol Hill um, and try to get legislation passed. Um, in the past, you know, previously, Congressman Rush from Illinois, uh, Representative uh, Duckworth, um, Senator Booker and Senator Sanders have all introduced resolutions or legislation in the past to give the FCC uh, explicit authority to to regulate intrastate call rates, um, and hopefully, you know, we can turn there. But there are a number of states that have that have acted on their own in recognition of this issue: um, New Mexico, Illinois, um, Alabama. Um, New Jersey uh, last year adopted uh, you know a rate structure um, so the there are states that are moving forward um, overall, I would say that 's less than you know ten to twelve states that have actually capped the rates. Um, unfortunately, what we do is we face a situation where at the state level the um, the state public utility commissions have decided they 're going to deregulate the telecommunication industry, which means that they ignore this subset of that telecom industry and you know don't set rates and don't regulate um you know what what happens to inmates and their families
1: is there anything that that we don't know that you haven't talked about already that we should know i feel like i'm still learning so much about uh, the issue with uh, the rates of prisoners uh, or the rates of calls from prisoners is there anything we don't know
9: well, you know, quite honestly, I think what has to be, you know, really focused on is the consolidation within the industry, and you know the, you know the, the role that these companies play at the actual facility. Um, you know, you enter into, or, you know, these companies enter into a monopoly contract to be the sole provider of you know telecommunication services, um, and these companies also own the commissary arms of the jails so that they dominate and, you know, have the ability to extract revenue, you know, for inmates who want to buy toothpaste or toothbrushes or, you know, um, new shoes, uh, socks. Um, And so essentially what's happened is, you know, the the whole prison uh, or jail uh, services have been privatized. So these companies have become these one-stop shops And you know, if they are, you know, in in this case with interstate rates, the FCC's regular, you know, power has been questioned. It's been overturned. um, They can easily shift to some other revenue stream because they dominate that particular facility. So, you know, what I would say is, if folks are interested in this, what they really should be focusing on is the idea of, you know, should we be privatizing or commoditizing? You know, and inmates stay in prison or a jail, and you know, what does that do to our, our to to our society? Um, do we want to have private companies preying on inmates and their families, that you know, when they're at their weakest, most vulnerable moment, and extract revenue from them for you know their own profit motive? Um, so, I mean, that's that's really where I think you know this movement has to go is to be focusing on you know just this massive consolidation um you know there's there's rumors that this the first or the, the largest company is now looking to buy the third largest company so global telink um is negotiating to purchase the third largest company telmate which would further consolidate the market um so you know in my mind what we really have to look at is just this enormous, you know, ex- exploitation of, you know, people at their most vulnerable uh, state.
1: And, you know, that's a fascinating point about we talk a lot about private prisons and what we don't talk a lot about is the privatization of services in public prisons. And that is what's happening uh, here. So appreciate you coming on the pod. Consider your friend of the pod. Look forward to having you back so we can dig deeper into this issue. Thank
9: you so much, Lee. Uh, My pleasure. And I appreciate you taking a look into it. Thank you very much.
1: Well, that's it. Thanks for listening to Pod Save the People. And make sure that you rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And make sure that you tell a friend. See you next week.